And now, the cleanest hour in podcasting with your host, Ralph Peterson. This is the Housekeepers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Housekeepers Podcast. Dare I say the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am, you know, I always say that I'm very excited. I always, every time I get on here, I'm like, I'm so excited to introduce or to have you meet. And uh, today I'm truthfully excited. I mean, this guy, we have to take, we had to pull him physically away from the palm trees that are in upstate New York. No, there are no <laughs> Fresh off of PST, the PST... I want to say D, disorder, I guess, PSTD, PSD, P- PTSD. Pete, good Lord, thank you, Bob. That's what I need you here for. I have it, so I should know. <laughs> That's right. PTSD of being a long-term care administrator forever. Recently retired, Mr. Bob Jones. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show with me. We've been friends, good friends, for a long time. I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to have I'm really excited to have you on because – what I really would love to talk to you about, I want to get into everything, but the, what I really want to talk to you about is why you hired me, right? Like we've been doing business together for a long time. Why do you use contract service? Why you used, you were so low, like you didn't use contract services forever, a lot longer than you ever did. Yeah. So I'm curious as to, as we get into this, I'm curious as to the pros and cons using commercial cleaning services or dietary services or rehab services, you know, just why Why contract out or why you shouldn't contract out? Yeah. Because I think there's pros and cons to both, yeah? Sure. We I, I had, what, 40 years in hospitals and nursing homes. So hospital side, you know, in-house management. We When I came to Wesley Gardens uh, 23 years ago, they were just off of a service master contract. So they had gone the contracting route for a period of time for what 19 or so years we were in-house until this you know ralph peterson guy showed up at my door and said uh, (laughs) (laughs) i think this former company can help you out (laughs) no that's great um, and it, it caught me at a good time because we were our executive team our management was getting smaller we were becoming leaner but more irons in the fire with managing individual departments and trying to oversee individual departments. And, you know, quite honestly, you don't always get the best manager in a housekeeping supervisor position. It's people move, you know, people can move up internally or come in from the outside, but they don't necessarily have the full background that you're looking for. You know what I just heard was this idea that Harvard doesn't create geniuses. Harvard recruits geniuses. So you already, to get into Harvard, you have to have a very high IQ. But when they get, when you get there, they don't add to your IQ. You don't go to Harvard and come out smarter. I could agree with that. It's very interesting to me because I think that is often the struggle we have in any management position, any, any, we're recruiting for any management position because we hire them as somebody who either already has management experience and we leave them there like we spend no we give no uh forethought to how to keep making them a better manager or worse than that we promote internally our super worker and expect that that's enough and so to your point that 
it's always a struggle in these departments, so not just the cleaning, you know, housekeeping departments, but also in dietary departments. A lot of departments are like that where you're even CNAs getting into a leadership position or a LPN getting into a leadership position, you know, yep. it's the same thing. And those super managers go on to other organizations and they're growing their career. So you end up with turnover in some of the stellar performers as well. They don't necessarily stay. You, you know, despite the, the you know, you think you pay equitably and, you know, that type of thing, they still, the grass is always greener. Yeah. You know, what's unfortunate about that, Bob, is sometimes the grass really is greener. Taller. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Tastier, a better side of the mountain, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's go back all the way back to the beginning. You didn't grow up. You're in Rochester or upstate New York. You're not actually in Rochester, but you didn't grow up there. Didn't you grow up in Pennsylvania? Yes, I grew up in Pittsburgh, north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, until I was in ninth grade and was transplanted with you know job that my father took in Rochester. So, yeah, but wasn't there like, didn't you guys tell the story? Because didn't you go on vacation? Wasn't there a family vacation? Oh, that- hey, we went on a two week vacation to, well, through a northern route, Yellowstone, down to Grand Canyon, back, uh, visiting some friends along the way. Is this friends. the summer? Is this the summer between eighth and ninth grade for you? So is this like you're 14, 15 years old? Yes. Okay. And uh, when, you know, this was pre-cell phone, so we arrived back in uh, Pittsburgh and found out that the place my father worked had burned to the ground. Literally twisted steel, the tools, he was a you know car- cabinet maker, carpenter, tools that he had had uh, gone up in flames and were charred as well, and uh, you know he had worked in Rochester previously and uh, said, we're moving, and my mother said, uh, I don't know, because all of our relatives were there. My father said, we're moving. <laughs> and he, you know, called Rochester, called the company in Rochester. They said, come on down. And so he was, he was there and he had a, a stand, basically a standing offer waiting for him in Rochester whenever, because he had worked, you know, worked periodically in Rochester previously and the company wanted him to come. And as soon as he said, we're coming, they said, great. <laughs> How many, excuse me, how big is your family? How many brothers do you have? I have two brothers. Two brothers. And your mom, was your mom a stay-at-home mom? No, she worked. What did she do? So she was worked at a bank at the time. So she had to move too. She had to like take new jobs and. Yes. So she, you know, we stayed, I forget what the dragging feet routine, we tease her about that because she couldn't leave the organization and abruptly so we stayed until it was a good transition for them and i think it took a while for my mother to get used to the idea of moving and uh you know buying a house and we moved into a house up here that we had never it was that the children had never seen because my mother came up to rochester my parents went house shopping and you know they he put a for sale sign in the house in pennsylvania for sale by owner and away it went and <laughs> you know what's so great about this story and i've heard it before it's why i absolutely love it it's the same thing happened to me where i was maybe 12 or 13 and my parents announced we're moving to vermont and i didn't even know where that was i was like what city what state is that in you know <laughs> yeah. and and anytime you know you tell someone in pennsylvania if you're you know you're either from new york or you're going to new york they think of new york city and that was the last thing we wanted. <laughs> we 
we lived on a dead end street. The front yard was woods and, you know, we, we were, you know, riding trail bikes and everything else and carrying hatchets and meat cleavers and everything else. <laughs> Any tool at our disposal. <laughs> so funny. And so you get to Rochester area anyway. And yeah. what was, what did you do? Like, did you go to work? Did you work part time as a kid? Did you? Oh, I worked early on. I did all sorts of things. Uh, bales of hay and picked turnips and potatoes and you name it. Uh, then, you know, worked at a hardware store, became assistant manager in my part time, you know, while I was going to school and then in the, in the college, uh, similar, you know, similar type occupations and, what did you go to school for? What was your... Oh, that, that could take the rest of the hour. Oh, here we go. <laughs> did you keep changing majors? Uh, I'll, make it, I'll make it quick. I actually went to um, the local Monroe Community College as a biomedical technician is what I entered as. Biomedical? And, uh, so I worked on medical electronics. Uh, oh, okay. Later, defibs, uh, all the way up to CT machines. I had appendicitis in my second semester. I was hospitalized for a week, so I ended up having that semester bomb, and I tried to get back, but it was just too much, you know, with the the burst appendix and everything else. I not to get too gory, but I left the hospital with a tube in me. Yeah. Um, it was, but I ended up going to MCC for three years, so I had a degree in biomedical technology and a degree in instrumentation technology, so I could go into industrial instrumentation or medical electronics and went to medical electronics. That's how I got into the got into the hospital side first. Interesting. Uh, went sorry about that. Went to um went to industry. I worked for Xerox for nine months in a contract position. And after about after I was a year at uh, St. Mary's Hospital here in Rochester. And, uh, you know, the grass was greener because, oh, you know, I was going to work for Xerox in 1981 and I was in nine months and I hated every minute of the day that I worked there. <laughs> Sorry, Xerox. <laughs> I'm sure it's not them as a company, maybe just your district, your region, your manager, whoever, right? It was, uh, it was an R&D position. So I was, you know, kind of doing my own thing on the research and development side, but it wasn't the feeling that I had working in a hospital. You, the people you repaired equipment for, the nurses, the doctors, you saw what you accomplished at the end of the day. At Xerox, you worked on a widget that may come out in a copier three or five years from now or be, be pulled and never see the light of day. So you had no real job satisfaction at the end of the day or even what your long-term goal might be. Because you work on something and then the, that whole line gets pulled. And uh, unfortunately, I found out after the fact Xerox had a, a history of doing that at that time. <laughs> so you were, it kind of sounds like what R&D is, right? You research, yeah. you develop, you make sure it works. It doesn't work, all right, you're, you're yeah. out the door it goes. And yeah, <laughs> you got to have no emotional some, connection. Met some brilliant people. A uh, gentleman I worked for had nine or more patents. Um, oh, wow. It was, you know, but then again, I had better, uh, you know, in, here in Rochester, they did most of their electronics out in California at the time. I had better equipment in MCC than I did at, at Xerox when I worked there. Oh, wow. Which kind of is interesting. You're 
fallen back 10 or 20 years on the electronics, you know, your test equipment side. They just didn't, you know, didn't come up to speed as, as quickly here in Rochester with their electronics side. And that's why you decided to move full-time to the hospital, right? Just to, Yes. I yeah. took a, what I'd consider a massive pay cut at the time, probably 25% from the contract position wow. to, you know, back to the hospital. But, don't, you know, that was Newark Wayne here locally. <laughs> oh, bless you. Thank you. And uh, I was at Newark for nine years, so I started the uh, biomedical department there and grew into the facility side. So that's where my first environmental services oversight began. So you went from repairing equipment to overseeing the EVS department. And maintenance and the construction underway. So we were basically clerk of the works on millions of dollars of construction as well. I was, it's uh, not that far of a leap, actually. No, Especially when was, you're in a hospital uh, and with your upbringing. Uh, hospitals were all facilities. Their facilities are facilities and environment. So the housekeeping, maintenance, biomedical departments, construction were all under under that broad heading. Mm-hmm. At, uh, when I went to Clifton Springs as, as a vice or director of facilities uh, there, I had a broader scope getting into what they called the central supply our, our notation was SPD, sterilization process and distribution, but uh, but that was also with security and maintenance, construction. Sometimes even transport, right? Transportation is even lumped in a yes. lot of times in healthcare. So we have a 30-acre campus and our uh, snow removal, lawn care, everything uh, was all yeah, part, everything. part of that. And uh, So then how did you get from there to long-term care? The local nursing home in Rochester was, uh, or Leslie was uh, recruiting for a vice president of facilities. I had the credentials for it. They were coming off major project, a 55 bed multi-story tower addition that had gone horribly wrong. So they needed somebody to come in and deal with the contractor and work out the million dollars of punch list items that still existed oh, after millions of dollars of punch list yes for those who don't know after what a punch list is after a construction job is done normally there's like little tiny bits and pieces that are missed a you know like a little piece of baseboard needs to be put in you're missing a ceiling tile you know a wall needs to be repainted like a punch list is generally a tiny thing not a million dollar thing that doesn't sound like a punch list, Bob. That sounds like a whole well, redo. Was, some of the top items that I recall, the uh, one of the boilers of three did not work properly since it was installed. Oh. The underground fuel tank wasn't piped to the emergency generators. There was the, 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 the tank wow. they were using was sitting on a pile of dirt, and the, the fuel oil piping ran across the resident patio down into the boiler room. Wow. So... <laughs> Not tiny items. So yeah, we were we were told by our you know our construction attorney that we were a one in a thousand project, and we were this close to arbitration uh, going into arbitration because we at one point I spent two days with the contractor and their subs in a local hotel going over everything that they that they did wrong didn't do and it's kind of an interesting one that. Some of the management that those subcontractors didn't realize 
what wasn't done. <laughs> they weren't aware. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's not that far off. I mean, we have that even you can even have that in a small operation where if the person right. who's doing the job is not communicating or the person overseeing is not looking, right. it's quite yeah. easy to lose oversight. The fuel oil tank that was 4,000 gallons of fuel was showing it was leaking for a year, as an example. So it was, and it wasn't connected to anything. So it was just a potential <laughs> underground storage tank leak. <laughs> The, the the simple solution was that whoever installed the float device to sense the leak in the interstitial lining, the tank is double lined, put it in so it didn't open and report a, a leak. As it rolled around, it opened and reported a leak as it rolled around the circular lining. So it was a simple fix, but they didn't take care of it for a year. Wow. And they were unaware that why it leaked. It was comedy of errors on the on the side. And uh, the construction company I dealt with the, at the same company at Clifton Springs, where I'd worked previously, and we had stellar multiple million dollar projects with them, and had no no issue whatsoever. Hmm. I got into a, a fell down a rabbit hole once. On YouTube, I'm prone to fall down YouTube rabbit holes, just so we're clear. But I fell down one on gas tanks, underground gas storage tanks. And so I am i think I know a little more than I ever really should know about <laughs> shutoff valves and emergency leaking and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, there you go. It's quite interesting because there's so many. There's kind of like a, you know, you have the double liner tank and then you have a default in case there's a leak, and then there's a default in case the default doesn't work. But like there's three, four different levels. And so just to imagine that it's not working for a year, you wouldn't you generally wouldn't you would think, think somebody that's possible. would have somebody would have took note of that and you know, thought that might have been a priority. I know, just the sound of the alarm. No, there's no alarm. <laughs> <laughs> I think the alarm actually rang so long it failed. Oh, the alarm failed. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So then you go from being the facilities director. How do you become an administrator? Uh, once said, hey, I you be an administrator, arrived Bob. in long, I, and both hospitals had long-term cares attached. Mm -hmm. So I was not unfamiliar with the DOH survey process and that type, you know, that type operation. When I, you know, I, I came to the facility and said, you know, I, it took me less than a year and said, I think I want to be, a, you know, I think I want to be an administrator. There, there I see, I see potential growth here. I applied to New York State for the licensure. I had to take, I think, three courses at a local college. Well, actually, St. Joseph's College of Maine at the time. So I did a distance learning. A couple of my courses were way, because there were five at the time that were required. A uh, couple were waived because of my prior experience, and they waived my 100-hour course. So I basically tested, passed, and became an administrator without having to do an AIT, having to do wow. a course or any of that uh, that most administrators have to fight through. I have a friend. She's been an administrator for a long time now, but hearing how she became an AIT, she had to, because you have to have 100 hours, Maybe it's even a little more than that at this point. I'm not sure. But she worked full-time as a business office manager in a nursing home. 
and Mm -hmm. then would volunteer three nights a week at another nursing home so that she could get her hours in so that she could take the test to become the administrator. Like that's, you know, that person really wanted to be an administrator. That's a lot of work. That's it. And just to hear that you didn't have to go through the AIT nowadays, you know, AITs are not paid. You know, there's still that whole thing where you're expected to do it without getting a paycheck and all that. It's a tough racket. It's a tough racket. And I had two AITs that worked for me once I became an administrator, once I became president and CEO. But we, but my predecessor, I'll give him the credit for knowing how to go through the system and, and eliminate the, the AIT portion. Because mm. they, basically, while I was going through my coursework, I was growing my, my experience to eliminate the AIT. So he was progressively giving me more responsibility as I went through my administrative coursework. So when I came to the point of testing and, you know, finishing the coursework, I was, I had already prior and, you know, more recent experience that, that took care of the AIT requirement. And truth be told, you wouldn't have been able to pass that test had you not had that either one of the two, right? That either hands-on experience or an AIT program. Yeah. Because to give you an idea there, you know, my, my scope, at uh, Christmasburg's Hospital before I came to Wesley was 120 FTEs. So there, it was, you know, massive numbers, multiple departments. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily on the clinical side, but my biomedical engineering technology brought some of that clinical in as well. So I, I knew a lot more than most, uh, you know, quote unquote maintenance guys that came in. <laughs> <laughs> so what, so now you're the, the administrator, CEO, president. What was the first department that you did outsource? Did you ever outsource rehab or business office or business office? The- we we actually outsourced both of those after the housekeeping. Uh, oh, so those were so housekeeping was first. Yes, housekeeping wow. was my my toe in the water, so to speak. <laughs> so, and that was we had almost coincidentally we had the retirement of an assistant administrator at the time who was essentially, he was our HR director, but had a lot of hospital experience. He worked at Clifton when I was there, he kind of oversaw the operational departments. I, at, at the time I was running, I was the administrator and the president and CEO. So I was stretched then. The board was pushing me to more of a strategic position and less of an operation. So it was how, you know, how are we, what departments can we, shed to a contract and the least least impact to the facility, maybe shave some dollars in the process and see we'll, you know, see how that goes. I'm curious. I'm curious how if you were to like just say a percentage wise, how important was saving money? Was it a fifty fifty? Was it was uh, money a motivator at all? It doesn't sound like money was the motivator. It it was probably may I'd say fifty fifty. Because you're in the nursing home side, you're always looking at star rankings, customer satisfaction, etc. A dirty facility, dirty floors. When you, when, um, I don't know, I'm, it may not be most people, but you see dirty baseboards and dusted edges and that type of thing. And it's your first impression of the facility walking through the parking lot, let alone your main lobby. And if, if your main lobby bathrooms are grungy that's your first impression to the 
families of what kind of care you're giving. Yeah, and to your point, even the parking lot, the glass on the sliding glass window, the you know the sliding glass door when you're walking in, the carpet, the front lot, everything is just yes. impression, impression, impression before you ever meet and say hello to anybody. Right. So I, I would argue that housekeeping is the most important, <laughs> my opinion, I, of course. I'll give you a high percentage. <laughs> <laughs> what came first, housekeeping or the building? <laughs> So I like that there was this part where you got to kind of make a decision. And I may have even used a line on you because it's a line that I really believe in. And that is you got to make a decision at some point. Are you in the healthcare business or the cleaning business? Are you in the healthcare business or the food service business? What If you had to focus on one thing, in my opinion, quality outcomes, quality measures, medical, you know, healthcare quality measures are probably more important to you than clean baseboards. Right. Not that clean baseboards aren't important. And I think you did use that line and it resonated because at the time, well, early on in my experience, we had shed an adult home. We shed independent housing. Leslie was focused on nursing home care only. We didn't want to get into the multifaceted assisted living, independent living and all that, that other, you know, that others were doing home cares and everything else. Adult day healthcare. Some facilities have a whole gamut. Of course. And they're all good business models. You just got to choose what you want to be in. Right. So we had already chosen we want to be, we want to be only in the nursing home business. Got it. And, and that was part of the problem is with the, with some staff turnover longevity, the, the environmental service department was no longer that elder workforce that we had previously, that, you know, some of the motivation, the, they've been here for a lot of years. We had multiple people retire in short order, including the supervisor. And then they had the same type facility set up. So the person that was in the maintenance manager essentially was overseeing the housekeeping supervisor. And, you know, as we've seen a thousand times in any of the businesses, the, those, those folks go back to their core. They, that he'd rather, maybe not, but he might not want to plunge a toilet before he does housekeeping management or training the supervisor, but I'd say it's a pretty close call. <laughs> I've always appreciated maintenance personnel, but I've never met a maintenance person who would rather, you know, worry about clean rooms and baseboards and plug toilets. If you give them one option to look at a boiler, they're looking at that boiler. Whether they're looking at nothing or not. <laughs> yeah. I will say from experience, look at their maintenance shop, and that'll give you an idea how their housekeeping skills are. <laughs> I think you almost just took the carpet out from underneath most, <laughs> at least most maintenance shops I've ever seen. <laughs> exactly. Disorganized at the very least. <laughs> so you decide, to, you decide to outsource because you met this amazing salesman. And and how did it go? Was it? It's funny too that you're saying that you're going through a lot of staffing turnover, because I mean, do you ever, you know what's so fun and interesting to me is the Americans. What is that act with the Age Discrimination Act? The Age Discrimination Act. Oh, Remember the Age Discrimination ADA, Act? ADA? Yeah, the yeah. ADA, that came out in the mid '70s, and it was against companies. You couldn't discriminate against people's age, but it doesn't kick in until you're 40. And it was because in response to like all these companies were, you know, 
laying off these 40-year-old workers to hire these 22-year-old college students. And nowadays, I'd give anything for a 40-year-old worker. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) It's just, you know, where we've come, right? It's just like this full circle. But when you lose that older workforce, you know, they're all retiring and they're getting out of it. And you now all of a sudden, people aren't even showing up and you're having... You tell me if I'm wrong on this, but it seems like you go from having small issues with clean and dirty, you're dealing with facility issues, room changes, plug toilets, dirty cubicle curtains, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden it changes. And now you're focusing on, did they show up? Did they show up on time? What do you mean she left already? Right? Like it's a whole nother car. You're not even talking about cleaning anymore. You're just trying to get people to come in the door on time. Even, even why as a housekeeping supervisor aren't you hiring people they had you know we went through a period where they were either looking for a friend or the perfect worker rather than having to train anybody so they were going through all kinds of applications but not hiring anybody yeah in the meantime you have open positions and paid time off and sick and everything else that creates those, uh, you know, creates even more of a magnification on the, on that open position. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, once again, to highlight that a EVS director, a standalone EVS director by themselves, they've got to be, if they're expected to stand on their own two feet, they've got to be really good at hiring, interviewing, training, finding, researching. And most of us aren't good at all those things. That's why we have HR, right? That's why we have support services just to support all the departments. Right. So what was it like when you handed that off to an outsourced company? You're like, and now it's your problem. And initially I was (laughs) somebody else's problem. Now we did only hand off the management function. The employee Why did you do that? Why did you why did you go management only instead of management and staff? One reason was that we had uh, continued to have 1199 SEIU as a union workforce for the, the housekeeping department. Did you so, have a language in the contract that says you couldn't use an outside management contract or a management company? We, we had to, the language said that we had to approach the union about outsourcing before we did any, oh. uh, anything. So we kind of had to, we would have had to kind of negotiate how that was going to happen. Okay. And, and it was, you know, as I was, you know, as I say, dipping my toe in the water, I thought, okay, this would be the segue to start the management side. And then we could turn the employees over because that same, you know, salesman was saying, his higher ups were saying, oh, we can have a Me Too agreement. You know, we've done this with other contract, you know, other, other unions, uh, shouldn't be, you know, it would be seamless. However, Whatever that contract was, it was just kind of a pass pass through anyway. So yeah, well, there's no cost benefit to it. Correct. Yeah. So you know, I thought I would see what the financial resources, training resources that the contract company would bring into the management side, because that to me that seemed to be our weakest link of oversight of the employees, training of the employees, keeping them engaged, and. uh Thought who better than a company that does it for a lot of others? Yeah, and that only does it. There's something really special about finding a specialized company. You know, you right. don't go to the hospital because you they have the best food. Not that they don't have good food, but that's not why you're there. Right. Right. And what I then found out was we had the same issues with that 
in that management turnover as the company had somebody that worked well in our facility they were putting them front line in another facility so or sending a trainee in in conjunction for a small period of time but then we were left with the trainee and the new person or the person that was knowledgeable went on so we had in, the, in several years probably had several management types in under the contract well, actually more than several so several that i can that i can recall <laughs> so what you were what you were hoping for was to be able to hand it off and just go all right i've got the housekeeping and laundry department taken care of i've hired a, an expert company and then in very short order you're dealing with the same issues as if you would have kept it yourself right I, and then i'm you taking i'm taking pictures of the cleanliness issues that I see, I'm seeing the overtime creep up because they're not managing the overtime, all the things that I thought I wouldn't have to be micromanaging or spending my time on was back to spending my time and then spending my time multiple times because the same issue was, was recurring with the multiple managers that came in under the contract. So when I dealt with the overtime issue and what they needed to do and how they needed staff and some of those, you know, really basic issues that I was back to that six months later with another person doing the same thing. And, uh, the, you know, so I'd be, I hate to jump over anyone's head, but I found myself emailing the higher ups at the, at the company more often about the same issue and saying, look, we dealt with this you know, had this under control and now it's back again. And, you know, I can't spend my, you know, as a straddling president and CEO and administrator, I can't spend my time looking at housekeeping issues and dirt in the elevator track. How was the whole idea of outsourcing received by your other department heads? Like, did anybody start getting nervous? And, you know, was there, did you announce it to your team and say, hey, listen, we're going to outsource the housekeeping and laundry management of it? Was it received well, not well? We did. Uh, obviously, uh, there are some managers that are nervous all the time. Our dietary director, for one, because that company also did dietary. The company also did maintenance. You know, less less of that, I think, than uh, you know, from my impression. But, uh, you know, so obviously our dietary director was a nervous type and uh, she was you know, she was nervous. We did look into that a little bit. I found it was helpful just to scratch the surface because that woke her up a little bit. To what... <laughs> There's nothing like a swift <laughs> kick in the butt, right? <laughs> woke her up to what uh, others were looking at and where she might uh, improve on her operation. And and you you know and, and when when you start to go down that you know that rabbit hole, you may also lose that person if they decide to jump. You know, she had been there a lot of years. We, you know, she ran a tight ship. So, you know, I was in, on one way, I was afraid to lose her, but she'd been there so many years. She was kind of fixed in her ways and, uh, needed, uh, you know, some outside perspective. And uh, I found that that was one way that we could, you know, bring that into the dining side or the maintenance side is as soon as somebody else comes in and starts looking and they start asking questions and, you know, people, you know, same old, same old doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, carry on once you have, you know, somebody else questioning what you're doing. When it doesn't take long, it seems like it didn't take very long for after you outsourced it to find that you were kind of in the same boat. 
as you were before, especially with clean and dirty issues, if you were taking pictures of everything. How was that received by your other management team? Were they too pointing things out? Were they too, you know, all of a sudden, could you even differentiate? Were they more critical of the, now that you outsourced than they were before? Some that were intimately involved with the environmental services side, the admission preps, the the turnover of rooms, uh, they, you know, housekeeping can drag that out. Yeah. uh, Anybody involved in that process, if you mess one part up, yeah. Yes. Admission. So admissions was very vocal because they, you know, they're going to bring someone to a room and admissions started going to the room that was prepped to verify that it was prepped because they've had egg on their face before where someone's, you know, someone's socks are still in the drawer or mm-hmm. there's, you know, feces on the toilet or something, <laughs> any of those items that, you know, again, that first impression you're... <laughs> yeah, of course. And you're shooting yourself in the foot. Did you ever cancel the contract? No. I think the after I retired, we we were at a point for probably the last two years of my employment where the facility was being sold. So uh-huh. kind of everything was kind of static. And it was the CFO retired. We did contract before that sale came up. We did contract out the business office side. Business office is the number one most outsourced department in long-term care. Certainly downstate if there's a big business office groups. We we did it actually two ways. We first formed a group and we first formed a company with two other not-for-profits so we could house a business office within that, within our own ownership, if you will. So uh, even though they were other not-for-profits, we still had a one-third stake in a business office. And, you know, then we didn't have to have to hire a CFO for ourselves. So we that, could have a yeah. deeper, you know, deeper pool in the business office. Actually did get into maintenance management in that business office side. It was an offshoot that uh, we hired a facilities director for all three. Oh, okay. Uh, and not for housekeeping oversight but more for the maintenance construction just you know keeping bringing a little bit more expertise to the table than any of us could could hire on our own and it it kind of focused that higher end stuff with that person as well as on the financial side as well and the problem we had was that the one ceo was retiring when we formed that because the potential was that the that organization grew to overall management. So my position would either be eliminated or we might end up with one CEO in ultimately in that yeah, yeah. in those three groups. Because we're all paying CEO salaries and that's a big number. Mm-hmm. Do we really need, you know, especially if I'm straddling for an administrator position, how much of that hourly salary or you know salary is being paid for an administrator type work versus a president and CEO. Sure. So in the end, though, you outsourced, you didn't do dietary. You did housekeeping management, facilities management, business office, and PT. Yep. Right? And the the business office side then went to an outside group after the consortium kind of fell apart. That period ended, and we went to an outside business office just for 
the sake of the transition to the new owners. I guess my question is, if you could go back, would you have done it sooner or not done it at all? On both of those counts, probably not done it at all. On the housekeeping side or the, or the business office side. It's there. And it may it's have not been the answer I was hoping for, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a fourth option that we didn't tie that I didn't, that I wasn't aware of too. Yeah. So, you know, there's another, a gentleman that approached me about a consulting agreement that uh, asked that. <laughs> For housekeeping services. We're, we're all growing, Bob. We're all growing. We're all just trying to figure it out here. Yes. Uh, you know, part of the way we brought that group together was that rather than an outside CFO was brought in, but the controller was from one of the organizations, that controller ended up keeping his payables person and all of the people from that particular organization because of the lack of computer expertise they had. The software at that particular organization, they continue to be housed there. So rather than being an independent location, they became more the other two were, you know, the redheaded stepchildren if sure. you were, versus the, you know, versus what they needed to do. Yeah, but that consortium that you kind of created with these other two nursing homes so that the three of you are kind of trying to do some economies of scale with the CFO, with your facilities director, all that kind of stuff. That aside, let's just talk, go back to, the actual outsourcing of housekeeping, business office when you finally did that, and rehab. You wouldn't have done any of those? Rehab, I would have done. Yeah. Uh, the, that, we had a very steady rehab business for many years. In the year or two before our conversion to contract, it became very variable. And the contract companies for rehab typically bill on a per minute given. So rather than a fixed salary and benefits of a million dollars that we were paying to a rehab department, we were getting the rehab we needed, we were paying for the rehab we needed, getting the reimbursement we needed, and it followed the variability of the census. So what rehab was able to do was make it take their expertise and really overlay what your needs were as a facility and be able to provide a really great service, which is what it sounds like housekeeping wasn't able to do. Right. And also the the whole uh, rugs Medicare reimbursement for rehab was changing. So th- that the, 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 the way we did billing previously, the way we made money previously, we knew was going to change. And who better than the experts in the rehabs that have been that have been following this massive transition for a year or more mm-hmm. to bring that expertise to the table initially rather than somebody internally trying to figure it out and hope they get it right because that rehab revenue for us offset the loss we had on Medicare or excuse me, Medicaid. Medicaid was was a loser and the Medicare offset on the revenue side to keep us to that break-even operation we were looking for. On I think this is going to be a really great question because what I want to know is how can a housekeeping outside contract housekeeping company, how could they have been better? And the reason why I think it's such a good question for you is because you were, you come from, from the facility side. And even though you didn't, you came in after, who'd you say was running, doing it for the hospital? Would you say, um, Oh, I, I, I came in after service master service master. Right. So and service they were, master they were, and they were at Wesley. So, 
Oh, they were. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is because a lot of times what happens when a contract service leaves, especially when they leave, you know, like if there's a, you come right after them, there's this whole memory thing that takes place, meaning all the staff still remember how they were told how to clean. They still remember the policies and procedures. They're still following, even though that company's no longer there, they're still following that company, right? Right. Or that company's policies and procedures and cleaning methodologies and all that stuff. So there's some lasting benefits, especially yeah. if you don't have a lot of turnover in that staffing. So were you able to build upon that? Like, how is that how you kind of got your own feet wet and... I think the the staff had been there. They hadn't been entrenched in Service Master for I want to say three or five years. So they really weren't. Oh, so it was a while then. Type, okay. Forever type organization. It was kind of a we're going to try this, and I think they realized it wasn't wasn't working out. And the staff, you know, that staff did have that muscle memory, if you will, and that, that they were there wasn't a lot of turnover for many mm-hmm. years in our environmental services department. It was. Probably one of the highest longevities, including dining in the building uh, for, you know, retention and years of service. And every year I mean, we had a, we had a cook and dining that was 40 plus years and, wow. uh, you know, and some 30 plus year environmental services people. So they've been around. They knew the, you know, what to do, what not to do and, you know, kind of, you know, learn from that. It was, there, you would think that there was a there were policy and procedure manuals and things was with Service Master, but that didn't really exist. So we were building policy and procedure manuals. They might have existed, but they took it with them, <laughs> and, and nobody had nobody bothered to keep a copy. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah, dead of the night, sneak out of there. Yeah. So how do you have any ideas? Like, how could a commercial cleaning business be successful in long term care? I think if they build that, well, first of all, building the relationship with the rest of the team is key and having a, a supervisor manager that is engaged with the rest of the, you know, the, with that front line in the department and the rest of the departments. They need to, you know, hear what the needs are of the rest of the frontline staff, clinical admissions, et cetera, and kind of use that in their focus rather than just listening to what the you know what the front office tells them as far as financials or i'm i'm putting in my time so i come in at seven i leave at two ish my boss isn't around uh, <laughs> we had some of that <laughs> two ish i like two ish that's really great you know i had a friend reach out a couple of days ago and i do a lot of management coaching as you know and i had a friend reach out and want me to help him walk through he was going to let somebody go let a new manager go and a new housekeeping manager, and he's explaining like all the things that are going wrong. I said, well, how long has she been there? And he hesitates. He goes, well, four, well, maybe six weeks. I go, weeks? <laughs> I was expecting years, months at the very least, weeks, four to six weeks. And the more he kept talking, the more I realized what the underlying problem could have been. I don't know because I'm not there, but just this whole idea that you have a brand new housekeeper manager coming in. And so here are some of the signs that you were saying. Like she wasn't she wasn't being found. People couldn't find her when they needed her. She wasn't returning emails and she wasn't answering her phone. And what that told me, and again, I just helped him go through the termination process because who am I? I mean, he's already made the decision. But what that kind of I kind of thought about was 
with all my experience working in long-term care and how I think that the reason that she didn't walk a lot on the floors is because she wasn't confident. I think the reason why she doesn't answer emails or phone calls because she was always getting yelled at or questioned, right? Like, you know how easy it is to be an outcast of a management team. It's so hard, you know, I, not to talk about clicks, but I think clicks are important. I think management teams should be real tight and clicky, you know, but if you're not part of that click, if you don't have a way inside of that click, if you're not being embraced by that management team, it can be very challenging. And to your point, when you have up or up, like you're the CEO and you're talking to another CEO and you're both trying to solve a problem like this, it doesn't work. Right. Right. I mean, all you're doing is identifying the problem. He's like, oh, I'll take care of it. And like, with directives, that's not, we got to figure out how to get those management teams to work better. Because I imagine if the facilities manager, the housing manager, the maintenance manager, the RN, the DO, and all the if they're all working well together, they all have each other's cell phone numbers. They're all having lunch together. I mean, I'm, I'm not telling you anything yep. that you already haven't heard me talk about it at nauseum, but I think that's how you create a winning team. And you get those CEOs that swoop in for 20 minutes because they don't only have the time to devote to that. Okay, it's solved. And in six months, you come back and it's like, what are you doing? We talked about this six months ago. You know? Yeah, it's not even six months. It's six weeks ago, six yeah. days ago. <laughs> One of the biggest frustrations for me in my entire career was solving the same problem five or six times as different people came through. It's like we dealt with this with the last CFO. Why are we dealing with the new CFO? Yeah, exactly. You know, one other thing that I'd like to bring back up is the whole idea of not owning the staff. And you talked about how overtime started to creep and a me too agreement. For those who don't know what a me too agreement is, it just simply means when a when a company has a contract with a union, it's impossible to get that contract to be changed in any way. So a subcontractor would come in and just sign a me too, like whatever you agreed to, we'll agree to as well, right? And so while while I agree with you, there it's always a pass through as far as the cost goes. If there's a benefit need to be paid out, a uniform allowance need to be paid out, whatever, it's just going to be passed through because you'd already be paying for it anyway. The real challenge with not having ownership of the staff is I remember it's like a little brief thing. I, I dated a woman once who had little kids and they would always say, you're not my dad. Like I wasn't trying to be your dad. I just didn't want you to stick your finger in the light socket. But because you know what I mean? And that's the mentality when you don't own the staff. Right. And it gets worse than that because then the company who is managing your staff doesn't have any liability with the overtime. And so, you know, that's the problem with government. They, you know, all government employees, they don't understand the concept of money because it's not their money. It's the same kind of attitude, right? Like, oh, well, I mean, it's it's their so, overtime, not my overtime. To flip that, one of the issues that we had was we were very big on discipline. We were, you know, because of the union contract, the, you know, the step disciplinary process, we lived with that. We, and we used that and terminated a number of poor performing people or poor customer service, you name it, in all sorts of departments. What, what we found in having the, the employees under us, but not under the contract is the, the contract management became hesitant at disciplining and terminating anybody. Because it just created more work for them to train, <laughs> to discipline, to 
everything else, they had this fear that, you know, we were, you know, they, they were going to be sued or something. And uh, it was, it was very frustrating when you, when you have that at your, you know, in your, in your set of tools and they're not using it. Yeah. That- they're not, they're not moving people through that, you know, you're finding people. I would stop in a men's locker room and, you know, non-break time, three or four housekeepers would be in there. It was their break room. They actually would drag the lazy boy chairs and <laughs> oh my gosh. into the men's locker room. And it was, and, uh, you know, if you think about it on the, on the evening shifts, when you have a female nursing supervisor, there's no way that she's going into the men's locker room. I remember I was working in a, I was, I'd been asked to go do a consultant work with this company and I went and walked in the maintenance break room and it was probably 10 o'clock in the morning and the three maintenance guys were watching TV on a huge plasma flat screen TV on the wall. And I was like, Oh, hi. And they're like, hi. Go, who brought the TV? I'm like, no, somebody left it. Like, <laughs> they're using a resident's TV. Like, all right, you can't make that up. Anyway. <laughs> I'll never forget some, one of my first rounds that uh, we used to do weekend rounds for the executive team when I when I came into Wesley and I was I walked into a dining room on one of the floors and it was a foot it was a Sunday afternoon football games on and uh, you know a couple housekeepers and clinical staff are in there CNAs are in there watching you know watching the watching the game is that wrong <laughs> and I walked up and I who's playing. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, who are you? Well, <laughs> I have a badge. <laughs> uh, they scattered quickly. <laughs> yeah, no question. You know, so that's why I always went up the back stairway to the seventh floor. And by the time you got to the fifth floor, everybody knew you were in the building. So, yeah, they're all running ahead of you. Yeah. Yes. Bob is here. Bob is here. I was. I spent a couple of years as a consultant, housekeeping, laundry, dietary, facility maintenance consultant, where I would go into nursing homes, they'd hire me, I'd come in and rewrite all their job routines, I would create all their workflows, I'd put all their schedules together, and then I would leave. I would literally just set it all up for them, and then I would leave, and I'd follow back up in a few months, and of course, not a single thing had changed, not one thing had been implemented, nobody had followed a single you know job routine at all. And so then I started to offer this other service where I would then oversee it, right? Because it's one thing to write the job routines and do all that. Let me just add this extra side to it where I'll oversee it. I'll come into the building once a week, once a month, whatever it is, whatever the contract terms are, just to make sure it's happening. I can do some ongoing training and management development, all that stuff. And I got to tell you, Bob, it was a nightmare. And the reason it was a nightmare is because I didn't own anything. None of the staff officially worked for me. The management didn't work for me. The administrator certainly didn't work for me. And so I would say, hey, this is the routine we're going with that I created with the owner's help. And the administrator would be like, the owner schmoner, right? Like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it my own way. And it was real. So from there is when I started to create, I created the standard health and rehab where I started to just do the education piece, which you attended one of my workshops where I started, what are you looking for? I have a certificate here somewhere. Oh, yeah, you're damn right you do. That's what we do here. So that's how I started doing the education side instead of the in-person side. Because unless I have the ability, and I learned this along the way, you know, even with your contract, if there, if you're not giving me the staff, then I'm simply not going to have the ability to manage anybody because nobody has to listen to me for any reason. 
It's much better. You got to do either one or the other. Own it all or don't own any of it and just be the education right. side. And well, and if you had the backing that top down, the owner, owner, you know, from the mm-hmm. administrator's perspective, mm-hmm. that would, in my organization, that would have been the end of an administrator. I can recall we brought in a United Healthcare Optum, you know, it's now called Optum, and and a social work director told me that uh, you know she didn't think she should be selling insurance. Well, they don't sell insurance. It was just her way of trying to skate around it. Well, that was the end of her her tenure at Wesley. Is you know we no longer need you. And I think that sent a clear message to the organization that you know, yeah, buy in or you're going to get on a boat and uh, yeah, it is. The old adage: the boat's leaving the dock. You're either in the boat. <laughs> We're going to leave you behind. <laughs> I think I think I've always, you know, it's one of the things I really have always appreciated about you and and Wesley and all the management team there is everybody really did understand that you were either for Wesley or against Wesley and you're either going to be on the boat or not on the boat. But I got to tell you, there's a lot of administrators out there. I met an administrator once where I was talking about just we we're having a big problem with nursing, you know, with gloves on the floor and nobody picking up after themselves. And the, the administrator said, and I swear I'm making, I'm not making this up. She said, we tell our CNAs that that's, but it's one of the selling points when we hire them is we tell them they don't have to pick up after themselves. I swear, this guy is a licensed long-term care administrator in upstate New York right this second, tells his CNAs when they come in, hey, listen, you don't ever have to pick up after yourself. That's why we have housekeepers. I mean, it's the most insane, ludicrous kind of message. But how far do you think I was able to get with his team? Nowhere. Nowhere. I couldn't train anybody. I couldn't hold anybody accountable. I couldn't ask anybody to do anything over and above or even just what they're supposed to be doing. And how demoralizing to the housekeeping staff. That oh, my gosh. Yeah. Up after the staff. Not yeah. The residents. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, there's a lot of administrators out there who think that housekeeping should. I think in order to clean up after some, I mean, you need to have a housekeeper assigned to each CNA, you know, like every, each CNA should have their own assistant. Like, assistant yeah. housekeeper it gets a little crazy out there we we actually considered assigning splitting up housekeeping and giving it to the each nurse manager on a floor so they had their own housekeeper their own you know part-time housekeeper that did their floor so there was more of an ownership that way it's a good idea one thing we found with, with turnover and training and open positions there wasn't, uh, when you lose that ownership, this is my floor or the part-timer that typically comes in, well, I only have to do so much because it's not my floor and I don't have to work too hard because this person's really getting the responsibility for the, you know, the other person's getting the responsibility for the cleanliness of that floor. I would say that other than project work, and I'm going to say this knowing that I make my money in housekeeping in long-term care, right? I mean, in senior care centers. I've not, I, there's been a very, I can't think of a single nursing home I've ever been in that needed housekeeping. Hmm. You don't need housekeeping. I mean, it's such a, you know, talk about a waste of resources because 80% of what housekeeping does is pick up after other staff. If you just had other staff pick up after themselves, I mean, you could, you could quite literally manage, you could get away with, I mean, a, I mean, how big was Wesley? Um, 200 beds? 200 beds. Yeah. 200 beds. I bet you could do fine with Wesley if your staff was just picking up after themselves. You could do fine with Wesley with two or three housekeepers a day. Although the 
Wesley was on the the we'll call it the bleeding edge of the universal worker, the, the Eden environment type. Mm-hmm. Many hands make light work was one yeah. of the, you know one of the things that I came into. They thought they could reduce housekeeping and turn it over to the CNAs and you know uh, you know <laughs> we heard one CNA say I didn't I didn't go to my training to be a housekeeper. You know, they, <laughs> nobody wants to do housekeeping, and that's uh, that's seen as a you know, agreed. But just to be clear, I'm not talking about cleaning. I'm not saying CNA right. should be cleaning toilets. I'm not saying they should be cleaning sinks. I'm not saying they should be wiping down beds. I'm not saying I'm not suggesting any okay. of that. Yep, yep, yep. I'm suggesting that if CNAs picked up after themselves, like there, you wouldn't find debris on the ground. Briefs in, weren't in the in, trash in resident rooms, in, right? In Dirty briefs weren't left in the trash. Oh, sorry. No, I'm just in saying, you wouldn't need housekeeping. The evolution of the Eden environment and some of the facilities falling on their face, you know, getting rid of housekeeping and then bringing them back because they just, they can't get the staff. The yeah. staff won't be clean on their own. <laughs> I always wonder, in banking, in banking, the hours are, the bank's over from 9 to 5, which means the hours are from like 8, 8.30 to 5.30. That's the hours of a of an employee. And you never hire a part-time employee as far as they're only going to work a couple of hours today. You hire full-time. Everybody in a bank is full-time. Everybody. And so then what happens if you go into the bank on some random slow day, like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, you'll see a lot of people with nothing to do because they're full-time employees and they're not going to be you're not going to let people leave or, or not schedule them because they're full time. Everybody goes, has to get their hours. And I think that attitude kind of permeates. And so like the grocery cart in the parking lot is a perfect example. And you ask people like, why don't you put your grocery cart away? They go, well, it's job security for whoever picks up grocery carts without understanding the whole purpose of a grocery cart picker upper is because people first wouldn't pick up, put away their own grocery cart, right? Like <laughs> people right. are and not. And if you go to the bank after hours to use the ATM, you see the contract cleaning service in there. <laughs> and they could have been cleaning all day, right? I mean, the staff could easily run a rag. And again, I, I'm in commercial cleaning, so I'm not against <laughs> I'm not trying to give away the contract. I'm just simply saying that a lot of times people are actually, you know, have this attitude that the reason I'm not picking up after myself, the reason I'm not putting the carts away is because it's job security for somebody else. And all right. It's one way to look at it, but it can be it can be a real challenge, especially when we agreed in the beginning. If the facility looks bad, I don't care how good your nursing is. I don't care what your quality measure numbers are. If it looks yeah. bad, it probably is bad. That's the perception. Right. Hmm. This has been fun, Bob. I. I'm, I'm, it's always a joy talking with you, Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> Even if others are listening. <laughs> well, I'm the same either way. You could. How are you in real life? This is me in real life. (laughs) (laughs) And you've known me long enough that this is me. (laughs) No question. And so, you know, let's just, I know I want to let you go here. I just want to touch on the fourth option, and that is consulting, which is what I'm doing now. You would have gone that route? Definitely. It would have, it was, and even though the ownership wasn't there, as long as, you know, as long as I was bought in, the staff knew that I bought in. As long as we would enforce that and the consultant would be, you know, an integral part of the team, I don't see why it wouldn't have worked better than what we had. Hmm. You know, I, I was stunned because, you know, you brought a lot of experience to the table before 
but it took you less than five minutes on the back of a napkin to calculate what our FTE count should be and everything else and how long it takes to clean a room, etc. I had, I don't know how many housekeeping supervisor managers through the building that couldn't do that budget. And that was, a, that was another, another issue with just trying to budget and get, you know, when I'm having to help the housekeeping contract budget. You know, <laughs> <same thing. laughs> Insult to injury and, right and there. What's, what's worse is I'm telling him he needs more. <laughs> and fighting the number up rather than what they told me in the first place. And, you know, cause we, we work with, uh, vacancy factor. And if you have a high turnover and you have, you know, two, three months before a position is back in action and you have a lot of longevity with uh, high PTO accrual numbers, you can have in, in our facility, we had sometimes two FPEs in just that vacancy factor in the in the housekeeping department with just just knowing that we're going to cover x number of vacations and x number of uh, you know open positions and that that period of time yeah i agree i i think that i i certainly found for me what works the best is with the education piece is with the consulting piece it is just like let's just take out a napkin and draw job routines. I can, you know, do it in, in eight seconds, but only because I've been doing it for, you know, twenty years. It's not because I'm some right. genius. Good lord. God knows. Would By like the way, think you, would like to think you are. Ah, well, <laughs> there are times I have my moments. I'm like, look how smart I am, and then I'll run into a wall because I'm a moron, you know. But um, we're gonna get out of here, Bob. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about why people outsource and why they don't outsource and maybe some of the pros and cons. And I appreciate you being so candid with me. I appreciate the time. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, don't go anywhere. But that's it for us, Mr. Bob Jones. And I thank you guys so much for paying attention and tuning in. By the way, I am, for those nursing home administrators who may be listening, I am hosting another workshop next week. Wednesday, Thursday, which Bob can tell you is pretty great. If nothing else, right? You get a it's nice certificate. <laughs> Two days all on housekeeping and laundry operations. It gets 15 CEUs through the NAB. End of the year, you need those CEUs. So um, send me an email at ralph at ralphpeterson.com if you're interested in attending that workshop. Otherwise, that's it for us, the Housekeepers Podcast, the cleanest hour in podcasting. Thank you so much. For joining us today, Mr. Bob Jones and me, Ralph Peterson. That's it. The Housekeepers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. Keep in mind, the best way to ensure that you never miss an episode of the Housekeepers Podcast is by subscribing to the show and following us on social media. For those of you who are more visually stimulated, you can always watch us record the show live each week on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. In fact, we post all of our videos on YouTube, so make sure you are subscribing to our YouTube channel. If you love the show and you want to help us out, please consider writing a review and sharing the show with all your friends and families and colleagues. And if you are looking for more information about today's guest, all of their contact information and the links to their websites are in the show's notes. That's it. Until next time, this has been the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am Ralph Peterson, and I'll see you later. <laughs>